Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. My name's Richard Atwood. I'm Crisis Group's Chief of Policy. And before Rob and Naz introduce the show, I'd just like to tell listeners that we recorded this on Tuesday, the 5th of January. So a day before the violent mob stormed the Capitol building in the US, these extraordinary and, and disturbing scenes out of Washington. I don't think those change any of our conclusions. If anything, they reinforce them. But it's good that listeners know that we recorded this beforehand. I hope you enjoy the show. As I'm president of the United States, Iran will never be allowed to have a nuclear weapon. Tensions between China and the United States have been increasing over trade, coronavirus, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and now the South China Sea. It takes a few to make war, but it takes a village and a nation to build peace. Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Hi. I'm Rob Malley, and welcome back to our podcast, Hold Your Fire. I want to actually welcome back our co-host, my old co-host, Naz. Great to have you back. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be back, Rob, and it's wonderful to be back in a, in a new year. In a new year, for many reasons. It is, it is wonderful. Indeed. I also want to thank Richard Atwood, our chief of policy, who's going to be joining us again. Thanks, Richard. Hi, Naz. Hi, Rob. Thanks very much for having me on again. And uh, so the topic today is going to be a little bit uh, different. It's going to be a conversation among the three of us about our flagship publication, Crisis Group's flagship publication, 10 Conflicts to Watch. It comes out every December. It just came out. We look at 10 conflicts that we believe warrant special attention in 2021. I'm very quickly, Naz and Richard, just going to mention what they are. We're not going to go through them uh, one by one, but I thought it would be useful for those who may not be aware of uh, what we selected this year. So very quickly, Afghanistan, Ethiopia, the Sahel, Yemen, Venezuela, Somalia, Libya, the Iran-U.S. struggle, the Russia-Turkey frenmity, and climate change's impact on security. So there you have it, Naz. Fantastic. I think um, I want to start off with a question, Rob, that actually goes to something you said about the popularity of this document. And my understanding is every year, this is one of the most popular publications amongst the many popular publications by Crisis Group. <laughs> and I want to start off by asking you both, not just as authors, but as people who I assume are thinking about this throughout the year, what's your sense of why this document is particularly 
um, popular with readers? And what is it about lists that that makes uh, them appealing in foreign policy circles? Honestly, it's a very good question. I've scratched my head several times about it. I mean, what's what's remarkable is not just that it's our most a popular uh, publication is that even you know well into 2020 people were still going back in great numbers looking at our list for 2019 i suspect also for 2018 uh, so i i mean i've asked some people i've done some reading people like lists i think it's a way of ordering their thoughts uh, they're easy to remember it sort of classifies things and i so i think it's not obviously listicles not just ours and they often come in tens many publications have lists at this time of year and i think for many of them it is a most popular output. I think people think in those ways. It helps them remember. It helps them both look back and look forward. Richard, I don't know what thoughts you have about that. No, I think that's right. I mean, we've often talked amongst ourselves about why it's so popular. I think part of it is the list format. Part of it is that it's quite succinct, so it's it's, it's very short. I mean, as to your question on sort of trade-offs on, on whether anything is lost in presenting conflicts this way, I mean, we also, we've also thought quite a bit about this. I mean, we've been doing these for a while now. You know, and Crisis Group is most known, obviously, for our long-form reports. Uh, we publish a lot of those each year based on field research, talking to all parties. You know, and it's that field research, it's those long reports that keep us honest. And, and I think it's those long reports that get us the access we have to policymakers. And, you know, the, the, the short pieces we do, like the 10 conflicts, I think that draws from our field research. It draws from our existing work. Now, obviously, the sort of shorter, snappier pieces like this have a, have a big value. They, they amplify our analysis they amplify some of our sort of policy ideas, our prescriptions. I think that the style is is a bit different. I think maybe it, it in some cases it's a little bit more accessible, but I think we still try to be balanced. We still try to represent the interests of all the different parties to conflict. Most importantly, we try not to sensationalize, you know, what are often horrible crises and, and the sort of enormous human suffering they entail. So I think although the format is different, a lot of the sort of principles that we adhere to in our reports, we adhere to the same, even though this has a slightly different and sort of snappier tone. I think, Richard, if I could just jump in, it touches on something that I've heard some criticism, and I think, you know, we are very open to criticism. Does this look a bit like the Academy Awards of Conflicts? And are we making, as you say, this sensationalist presentation? I think we have to be aware of that, and we try very hard to have the same tone in this publication as we have in others, as, as Richard said, looking at the conflict and at its at the tragedy behind it, but also opportunities for resolution. But it is something to be mindful of. This is not a sort of a parade of the best conflicts. This is what we're trying to do, and I'm sure we'll talk about it, is use this as a method of reminding people who may not either know about it or may not be reminded of it often enough of the conflicts uh, that are that are occurring and to which they, they need to not only pay attention, but expend resources and time to try to resolve. Can I jump in there, Ram, and ask there's the criticism of kind of lists as a thing. And I think you've both addressed both sort of why they might be appealing and what function they have from crisis groups perspective. What is a substantive criticism that you've heard this year? Is there any any countries or any conflicts that some have said ought to be here or ones that you left on the cutting room floor that you had second thoughts about? Every year that happens. This year it's going to be hard, but I usually travel and give presentations about the list. And I always get questions from some, actually some who say, why is our country on the list? It's usually government officials who see this as a sort of a badge of infamy that they made the list. And we have to explain to them, sometimes countries are on a list because there's an opportunity for resolution. But then I also get a lot of people who say, why is this country not on the list? You missed an often a very tragic and bloody conflict. I think this year, the reaction so far, and I'm be curious if Richard has heard any, any others, 
you know, why did we leave China off? Why, given the tensions that are brewing between China and the U.S., China and, and, and other Western countries, but also tensions between China and India, China and Taiwan, how come it was not on the list? I think that's a fair critique, and we could come back to the reasons why China didn't make it. And another country that, again, I, I've heard some say, why not the U.S.? I mean, crisis groups spent quite a bit of time this year looking at domestic dynamics in the U.S. for the first time in its history, a polarizing president, a country awash in weapons, socioeconomic crisis, a crisis of legitimacy of its institutions. Again, we didn't believe that it warranted a place in terms of the gravity of the conflict, but it is a, a fair critique. And then a perennial of mine, because it comes up every year, and it's every year we don't put it on the list, is the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, I think Palestinians in particular complain that is this another sign of the fact that it's an ignored conflict, which which may well be the case. I think it's it's a conflict that is mired in a status quo, which is terribly unjust. And someday we'll wake up and that status quo will lead to an explosion as these despairing situations often do. And then we'll look back and regret not having put it on the list. But it is true at this point that it is not the kind of conflict that has the obvious manifestation that we see elsewhere. Richard, I don't know if you've heard anything this year or in the past. I mean, maybe just to add to that, you know, first of all, I'd say that, you know, we sort of put this together every year. It's very much a collective undertaking. I mean, we talk to our colleagues around the, around the world, our colleagues in regional programs. And I think broadly speaking, we tend to include a mix, certainly a lot of those wars that are killing the most people, causing the most suffering and destruction. I think sometimes we put conflicts in because of their geopolitical significance, so that their importance on the world stage. I think, as, as Rob said, we, we often put conflicts in where we think there's either a real chance of, of it worsening uh, over the coming year or alternatively, maybe an opportunity for peacemaking. But these, you know, these aren't hard and fast rules. And, you know, as, as we hear every year and as we've heard this year, obviously, there's some horrible wars that are killing a lot of people that don't make it onto the list. And there's some sort of other situations, uh, brewing situations that, that also don't make it on. I mean, those ones, aside from I'd agree with the ones that, that Rob mentioned, you know, I think it's easy to think of others that could have made it onto the list. Central African Republic has just sort of escalated in recent days. Very nasty insurgency in Mozambique, uh, in Cabo Delgado that could have made the list. And again, there's many conflicts that still the conflict around Lake Chad, killing a lot of people. Syria, still a lot of people dying in Syria violence in the Eastern DRC. So there's a lot, I think, that could have made it on. But we we sort of try to think through, you know, what are the conflicts we really want to try to draw additional attention to with the list and, and get people thinking ahead of the coming year. And can I ask a question based on something Rob said, uh, the idea that crisis group spent more time and spoke more about the U.S. than I think ever in its history this last year. And of course, we've seen in the last few days very, very troubling reports uh, coming out of Washington regarding the president's ongoing efforts to undermine the presidential elections. And I wonder, I know the introduction of the list discusses the question of Trump and the shadow uh, that the Trump presidency may have on the years to come in terms of conflict and peacemaking. What is your sense of the legacy of Trump's presidency for foreign policy, if anything? So is there anything about this presidency and not in terms of U.S. politics or U.S. electoral questions or even the state of the democracy in the U.S., but rather for people who think about foreign policy issues and particularly conflict. Do you see that in 2021 and beyond, there will be long-lasting effects of this presidency? And, and if so, what? 
So first, I think, I mean, you, you divided it between the domestic and the foreign policy. I think there are foreign policy consequences of the domestic policy in terms of America's ability, which has always been questionable, to give lessons to others about or to try to send a message about human rights, democracy, freedom of the press, respect for judicial institutions. It becomes harder. It's always been somewhat difficult because of uh, the United States' very checkered history, but it becomes harder when you have a president openly trying to threaten a state official uh, to find him, what is it, 11,700 votes in order to, to win the state of Georgia. And I think that's going to be lasting. I mean, people will keep coming back and saying, well, who are you to speak to us when you see what happened in your country? But then you raise another question. And this, Richard and I have debated this for the better part of the last year, which is, are we paying too much or not enough attention to the damage, if that's the case, that the Trump presidency did to the conflict landscape? And, you know, I think maybe because I live in the United States and I'm sort of surrounded by Trump and, and everything he's done, that I have tended to be a little more worried about or, or paint a more negative picture about the legacy of the Trump presidency in terms of the values component I just mentioned, but also in terms of disinterest in conflict, transactional diplomacy, uh, what he's done vis-a-vis -vis Iran, what he's done vis-a-vis -vis Venezuela, what he's done to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, just the whole disregard for conflict resolution. But I think Rich, and I'll let him speak, I think he's pointed out correctly that objectively, if you just look at things, it's not as if these past four years have seen the United States play a more destructive role directly on conflict. In fact, many have noticed that many have made the point that this is the first presidency, I think, since President Jimmy Carter back in the 1970s, under whose watch a new war has not begun. So I really would like to hear from Richard, but it's true that I keep coming back to it. I think it's my bias and my prejudice as an American, perhaps as much as anything else. This is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Today, we are talking with Richard Adwood about the 10 conflicts to watch in 2021. I don't want to be put in a position where it sounds like I'm sort of defending President Trump's legacy. I mean, you know, I don't think he has a good legacy. And, you know, I think also it could have been very, very different with a second term. I think also agree very much with Rob that we should in no way downplay what he's done at home, which is really his most destructive legacy, and that will resonate abroad. And of course, there's still a couple of weeks left. I mean, there's still time for him to do things in those weeks. But I would say, you know, leaving aside those qualifiers, you know, I think that the presidency has been so different in tone and in style that I think sometimes that masks some continuity in, in substance. That, that he sounds so different, that the rhetoric that he uses, the sort of language that he uses, he's so inappropriate or what we see as inappropriate in so many ways, that that in some way blinds what in some cases has been continuity in substance or even where there's been divergence, not necessarily divergence that would not have happened it's not unthinkable under a different president, a, a Republican or alternative Republican president, or even under a, a President Clinton. So I think in some ways the difference in some parts of the world has been more in tone and style than it has been in substance. Now, this is a very difficult conclusion to draw. I think you could look at different parts of the world and draw very different conclusions. Of course, there have been some areas where there's been huge change, especially on tone, his language about democracy and values. You know, I don't think people expect consistency from the US on, on that sort of stuff. 
But still, you know, it's very unusual to have a president who's sort of openly admiring what dictators are doing and the powers they enjoy from from the White House. I think that that's very unusual. I think his tone on alliances combined with what he's done at home will probably lead to irreversible, maybe not, but still pretty profound changes in the way that the US is perceived, how reliable it's perceived as being in Europe in particular, but also potentially among some other allies. You know, I think with a different president, we probably would have seen more leadership over COVID, you know, with with a different US president, even a Republican, there would have been more US leadership, uh, more sort of multilateral leadership. And then I think, you know, in many places, the US has sort of been absent in a way that it might not have been under a different president. So some of the conflicts on our 10 conflicts list, you know, Libya, uh, Ethiopia, Nagorno-Karabakh, I mean, the US has just been sort of absent. Though maybe, maybe this is a sign of the times, a sign of changing U.S. priorities, changing U.S. role in the world. But I think the absence has been quite striking. So I think there have been clearly some changes. On the other hand, I think there's been places where there's been a, even big changes, but they're not. it's not necessarily change that wouldn't have happened under a different president, even if it would have sounded and looked a little bit different. So, you know, Iran, there's clearly a very clear divergence, picking a side in the sort of struggle in the Middle East between Saudi Arabia and Iran. That was very different, but it's not unthinkable that that wouldn't have happened under a different US, especially Republican president. Israel-Palestine, again, very a very sharp divergence with uh, Obama policies, but not unthinkable that wouldn't have happened under a different Republican. China, I think the pushback on trade practices, the view of China as a strategic competitor, some of the pushback on China's uh, assertiveness in the South China Sea, Hong Kong. You know, I think the idea of China as a strategic competitor is now pretty much baked into US policy. The tone might change under Biden, working with China in the Security Council, working with China on climate, that might happen. But the idea of China as a strategic competitor, I think that was a change that was coming anyway. So I think there's been a lot of places where policies changed, but it's not necessarily something that's unique to Trump. And then I think there's many places, and again, I don't know list too many, but there's many places where I think there has been a lot of continuity. I mean, Russia, strikingly, for all the noise and the strange relationship between President Putin and President Trump, I think the policy is there's been more continuity than divergence between Obama's second term when the relationship was already deteriorating. And Trump, again, the suspicion of Moscow is really quite baked in on both sides of the aisle in the US. The counter-ISIS campaign seems now many, many years ago, but I think you can reasonably argue that that was a continuation of the Obama strategy. Maybe the Trump administration played a bit faster and looser with the rules, but it was broadly the same strategy. And I think the defeat of ISIS or the ouster of ISIS from the territory it controlled, you know, you can reasonably see that as a foreign policy success. Counterterrorism, I mean, I'm, I'm interested in what you think of this. I see more continuity there than divergence, emphasis on targeted killings of, of jihadist leaders, um, you know, and they've killed quite a lot of Al-Qaeda leaders. So I think there, again, continuity. And I think you could, you know, you could go around other places as well and find evidence of continuity. So even where the policy looked very different, even where Trump sounded very different, you know, it sounded exceptional, but if you look at the substance and if you look at what the substance looked like in different parts of the world, I think there was more continuity than his bluster and his sort of exceptional rhetoric suggests. Rob, I want to give you a chance to jump in on this. Uh, what's your reaction? No, but I was actually going to say something that was going more in that direction because, you know, first of all, I think there was a lot in the Obama administration, in which I served, that I would look back and say, you know, and I've expressed more than regret in terms of our complicity in the war in Yemen, in terms of the intervention in Libya, the use of drones, as Richard said. So I think, again, I'm always careful not to paint uh, as a rosy past the pre-Trump era. And I think it's also fair to say, and I 
and I say it in the introduction to the 10 conflicts to watch, um, that there are areas in which President Trump, maybe he, he a trailblazer in some ways, and maybe a, a success will be able to build on it, talking to the Taliban, talking to uh, the North Korean uh, Kim Jong-un, withdrawing troops, or at least beginning the process of ending endless wars. As I also commented, I think, because of the way he did all these things, in his very transactional way, in a very haphazard way, without follow-up, without preparation, he gave a bad name to potentially very interesting policies. And I think that's one of his legacies. And I don't know whether people are going to be as willing to continue on the path that he began because of the way he began them. And I don't know what's going to happen to the talks with, with the Taliban. I don't know what will happen to the beginning of the steps of withdrawing troops from places like like Afghanistan and like like Syria. But I take the point that there are areas of continuity and there's some areas of change which are not entirely negative. And I think we just don't know the answer yet about the legacy, right? I mean, I think in terms of uh, it's easy to talk about American hypocrisy with previous presidencies uh, using the rhetoric of human rights and emancipation and democracy while engaging in conflicts and or supporting conflicts around the world. But I think the question of what will be the long term legacy of the, for lack of a better word, sort of culture of the Trump leadership we don't know. So, for example, in the area of the rules applicable to war that I tend to think about a lot, these recent pardons of the Blackwater employees, will there be a longer term impact where there is a sense that the rules don't matter, where even those who are convicted of having engaged in grave abuses in armed conflict will be pardoned based on political machinations? I don't think we know the answer about sort of what what will be, if anything, um, the longer term effect of this kind of American presidency, even if one takes a very dim view of previous uh, American foreign policy leadership. But let me move on, because I think as the three of us would agree, this is a rabbit hole that we could go down for far too long. And I want to focus <laughs> on a few other parts of the list. Rob, I, I was struck by the introduction and particularly the language in the introduction about the idea that there is a, a favorite adage of diplomats, of peacemakers, I think even of, a, in many cases, crisis group approaches that says there is no military solution to political mm -hmm. conflict, right? It's, it's in a way the basis for the idea that uh, the prevention and the ending of armed conflict is crucial to, to achieving real political change. But yet you say in a striking sort of series of examples, tell that to these various communities around the world. Are you saying in a way that in some of these cases, military solutions are the only solution? Uh, what's behind this language? So first, I mean, it is true. It's maybe a professional uh, deformation that we, I think Richard would say the same. We have an inclination more than an inclination, to say that the only sustainable solutions, the only fair solutions will come at the negotiating table. And that's what that adage means, is that the only way you're going to really settle these things in the long term in a way that's sustainable, in a way that's not going to give rise to future crises, is through diplomacy at the negotiating table. And we sort of have our recipe, our long list of, you know, inclusive dialogue, dialogue with compromise, etc. What is true at the same time is that there's a number of conflicts that, if not resolved, have been quieted down to the point where there's no longer a, an active conflict. And I mentioned a few in the introduction, and what made me think about it this year are two conflicts that we've had an opportunity to discuss at length in these podcasts, Nagorno-Karabakh and Ethiopia. In both cases, 
Neither one can we say that the answer is given. I mean, in Ethiopia in particular, as we discussed, I think, even just a few weeks ago, the conflict in the Tigray region may be far from over. The conflict in Ethiopia may be far from over. But the government took the decision that it was not going to negotiate with the Tigrayan leadership, and the Tigrayan leadership maybe didn't want to negotiate in, in good faith uh, anyway, and tried to resolve it militarily. And again, it's the story is not over yet, but it, it appears, at least in the first phase, to have defeated the organized Tigrayan leadership. Again, we know from too many of these cases that you don't subdue a rebellion that easily, and so who knows what will happen in the coming months. But that made me think, and then you combine it with Nagorno-Karabakh, a, a conflict that has been ongoing for a quarter of a century, and then Azerbaijan decides it's had enough and it is going to resolve this its own way militarily. Again, I don't want to claim that I know what the future will bring, but it has been more successful militarily than all these diplomatic attempts have been for years and years and years. And I, I think we at least need to question, as crisis group, we always have to question ourselves. We will keep saying that a sustainable solution, whether it's of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, whether it's of the Western Sahara, whether it's of Syria, whether it's of Yemen or, or, or Libya, will only come when you have enough buy-in from the people who are on the other side of the military that appears to be prevailing. But does that mean that you won't have long periods of time where military, quote-unquote, solution will be what we live with and where we will keep saying it's not sustainable, but Again, to take the most obvious case is the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, where people have been saying now, for as long as I can remember, the status quo is not sustainable, and nothing has been more sustainable than the status quo, which has been achieved through uh, military superiority. So that's what made me think about it. I don't think we're going to give up on that, on that core belief, but it's one that, you know, it's harder to tell governments this is the wrong way forward because you're not going to be able to sustain it when they look around and they say, well, you know, look at Chechnya, look at Syria even. Military solutions seem to have a way of bringing about stability, more quickly at least, than, than diplomacy does. And, but Rich and I also have been discussing this, and I know he has some thoughts about why there seems to be a diplomatic impasse these days, uh, probably deeper than, than we've encountered in recent decades. You know, I think that, that's right. You know, I think it's also very easy to look around the conflicts on our list this year and conclude that it's pretty clear that most of them don't have military solutions, right? And we know that they don't have military solutions because the warring parties, their outside backers, have been trying to win wars in Afghanistan, in Libya, in Yemen, in Somalia for years. I mean, how many troops did the US throw at the Taliban? I mean, clearly there was no military solution to the Afghanistan war. So I think there's clearly things that can be done militarily. You know, a more powerful military force can obviously oust the government, can obviously oust the leader. If it decides to, a more powerful military force can shift the balance of a war like Russia has done in Syria, like the Turks to some degree have just done in Libya. They can capture back territory. But I think the big question of what, you know, it, the big question is always, or in many cases, is going to be what comes next. And as you say that in Ethiopia, the, the question is still out there. To some degree, the question is still there in, in, in Azerbaijan, in Nagorno-Karabakh. You know, I think in some ways what's interesting is whether the international environment has changed in a way that makes it easier to pursue military solutions. Uh, you know, maybe that's true that after the post 9-11 wars amid mounting geopolitical tensions, dysfunction on the Security Council, you know, maybe that's true uh, that the international costs for many countries, for powerful countries, for countries with powerful allies, the international costs, the international opprobrium that they'll get if they kind of go in militarily, that that's less than it was 20 years ago. You know, I think that that, that is probably true. But I think if you kind of come back to the argument 
you know, the, the sort of give war a chance argument that it's better to let one side win or to go militarily rather than trying to force a power sharing compromise that, you know, that, that a military solution results in a more sustainable peace over the long term, fewer people die. You know, I think there may be cases like that and you highlighted some of them. But the past couple of decades also show that, that you know, in many cases, they're the exception, not the rule. And generally, generally speaking, compromise accommodation, you know, is the only way to peace in the vast majority of today's wars. One, one comment on that, which is, if you look back at crisis groups history, it was born kind of paradoxically out of the feeling that uh, there was not enough international intervention, including military intervention, uh, Bosnia, Somalia, Rwanda. These were cases that seared sort of the founders of crisis group and who said there should have been a military intervention sooner. And I've always been struck, one of my uh, Israeli friends who was an official and we disagreed plenty about the Israeli-Palestine conflict, he once asked me, uh, when I was then leading the Middle East program at Crisis Group, he said, is there ever been a conflict for which you have actually advocated military intervention as the best way to resolve it? And he stumped me because there wasn't, because partly my formative years, in a way, uh, were Iraq and the disaster, but also earlier, um, from a U.S. perspective, the intervention in Vietnam and then the intervention in Iraq, and the notion that military intervention can be the shortcut to resolving a conflict has always struck me as as very questionable. But it is true that at its core, Crisis Group is not necessarily an organization that was built on the premise that military intervention is always and in all cases a bad idea. I think over time, the bar that we set as an organization to finding that a Military intervention on the, you know, on the responsibility to protect theory, for example, that that bar had to be extremely high, given the disaster that we saw military interventions provoke. And Richard and I had on the show not long ago, Phil Gordon, who just wrote a book about the catastrophic record of U.S. interventions, military interventions, regime change interventions. And that, I think, has formed part of crisis groups evolving DNA. I think my takeaway from this is that this could be a great topic for a discussion on its own. And it also makes me think, Rob, that certainly I think you're right about the founders of Crisis Group and the kind of ethos of the of the 90s around the idea of beneficial uses of force. But of course, that was also an idea that it was uses of force by particular kinds of states, right, by particular Western states. And the entry on, on Russia and Turkey makes me think that you may also have a number of states today and in the future that say, yeah, absolutely, military force can be beneficial, but our use of military force, and according to our definition of beneficial, which might be very different from the kind of peacekeeper um, idea of the 90s. So I think something to to continue to think about, and as you both said, to also be self-critical about um, I know we don't have time to go into all of the individual countries and the many important cases that are there. Richard, if I could, I wanted to ask you briefly to talk about one that seemed particularly bleak to me, where the kind of last paragraph seems to indicate very little in the way of possible solutions, and that's the entry on the Sahel. Can you speak a bit to why, uh, if I'm right in reading, that th this is a particularly uh, grim time and moment for, for that area and maybe speak to that entry briefly? Yeah, putting me on the spot. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, the Sahel has been in this sort of protracted crisis really since 2012, 2013, when jihadist militants sort of piggybacked on this Tuareg uh, insurrection in the north, captured much of northern Mali. 
and held it for better part of a year before they were ousted by a French uh, intervention. You know, since then, I think there's been a lot of challenges in reconstructing the north of Mali. But really, the, the problem of Islamist militancy, uh, of jihadism, has sort of spread from the north of Mali to, to the center of Mali, to Burkina Faso, which is really suffering quite high levels of, of violence, uh, and to parts of Niger. Now, as jihadist violence has spread, obviously, the, there's been a big French military intervention, you know, largely a counterterrorism force, peacekeeping force, which is struggling in, in Mali. There's been regional efforts, the, the G5 Sahel, to, to sort of fight jihadists. But they brought with them often their own problems. I mean, they, they often back non-state armed groups. Often these then fuel intercommunal violence, which is actually now killing more people than fighting with jihadists. So, you know, I think there's some real challenges in the Sahel and underpinning it. Our team sees this more of a, you know, it's partly a security crisis, of course, but there's a there's a deep governance crisis underpinning the, the security crisis. That there's been a really a breakdown of states' relationships with many of their citizens in rural areas, that some of the systems that traditionally mediated conflicts or mediated relations between center and periphery or mediated conflicts among communities in rural areas, whether these were state actors, whether these were uh, traditional authorities, many of these have broken down and it's sort of created this environment where it's really ripe for jihadist militants to, to exploit or for intercommunal tensions to grow. Actually, I think it's a good segue to the last question about the availability of or not of military solutions. And to bring a little bit my own experience, when I was working under the Obama administration, one of my jobs was the coordinator of the anti-ISIS, anti-ISIL campaign. And so I understand in this case, it's the French mainly who are leading the military campaign in, in Mali and in the Sahel. I understand the metric by which they are going to be judged is have they defeated military the jihadists? They being who, Rob? The French. In this case, ah. the French. In the case of the U.S. campaign, uh, the, the U.S. government, but the French government, it's going to be on the hook. How many jihadists has it killed? Mm. Has it really defeated the movement? And the kind of solutions that a crisis group were advocating, which are the longer-term solutions of trying to restore their legitimacy or the, the, the presence of the state, mediating intercommunal conflicts, addressing these through dialogue, those take longer. And if you're in government, you're, you're working at one month, six month, one year intervals, not four or five years. And I think that's one of the conundrums that we face at Crisis Group. But the Sahel is also a very good illustration of the inadequacy of military solutions. One of the things we've tried to do over the last several years at Crisis Group in terms of our innovation is to use more graphics. People like lists, they also like graphics. I've discovered I like graphics. And one of the ones that has been most striking to me is the graph that our Africa program produced that charted the increase in military presence of Europeans, of Africans in the Sahel, and the increase in violence and conflict-related deaths. We're not positing correlation, but at a minimum, you can conclude when you see that both are growing in parallel, that injecting more military force is not the answer. There's going to have to be a military component. But you look at those curves and it is, again, we could write 30 page reports and they're great. But looking at this one graphic tells that story so vividly. I did notice that this list seemed to me to be particularly limited in its sense that the United Nations would play a major role in many of the solutions. I was struck by how little the list seemed to be speaking to the UN and to kind of traditional notions of multilateral institutions and multilateralism itself. Um, let me close with one more uh, specific entry. And Rob, let me come to you on this. 
climate change. It, of course, we all know the the ways in which climate change has been linked to conflict and to the idea of both exacerbating or even causing conflict. But I want to ask, how do you make this vital? How do you turn this from being kind of a, a trope that we say every time we talk about key cross-cutting issues in conflict and really make this something that uh, those engaging in foreign policy around the world uh, feel that they can do something about? Yeah, it's a great question. And it is another one of the innovations of the last few years. I mean, and my colleague uh, who heads our Future of Conflict program, Tarek Ghani, and I wrote a piece about that interaction between climate change and conflict. And you're right that people talk about it in an abstract way. And, you know, you could be interested or not, but it doesn't really get that much purchase often. I think what we've tried to bring as crisis group, we don't have climate change expertise. We're not the ones who are going to give a solution to how to reduce carbon emissions. But what we are trying to do is to marry our field work, which looks at what's happening in the Sahel, what's happening in Nigeria, what's happening in the Mekong Valley, what's happening in the Nile Basin, and look at the political dynamics and see how those are exacerbated and can be made worse by the impact of climate change and how, conversely, political steps, political solutions can mitigate the impact of climate change. And what we write in this piece with Tarek is that the same climate patterns, the same weather patterns, can have very different conflict situations depending on the political responses in the community in which it hits. So we're trying to bring the granularity that is sort of what we are known for at Crisis Group, looking at specific conflicts in specific areas, but then bringing in the climate dimension. Because if we ignore it, I think, and the reason we reached this conclusion was five years from now, maybe less, we're going to look back and say, we have missed such an important driver of conflict. I mean, we looked at we look at social relations, we look at gender, we look at religion, we look at all these great power dynamics, but climate change is going to be one of the major drivers of conflict and has been and will continue to be and will be worse. And so we are trying to bring what makes our specific, you know, our value added to this debate. And I have to say it's, it's had a lot of echo because I think you're finding people who are interested in climate change and people who are in, interested in conflict looking to the work that we're doing and saying, yes, this is filling a niche that needed to be filled. Excellent. Thanks to you both uh, for this. And I, I think we'd love to hear from listeners, uh, their reactions and reflections on the list. And we will continue to talk about, I'm sure, many of the conflicts and issues that were raised there throughout the year. Well, thank you, Naz. I want to thank Richard again for participating. Thanks very much. And for being such a great colleague and putting together with, with all our, our, our staff this 10 Conflicts to Watch. I always say that every year when we do this, we get far more entries from the programs than the 10 that we could limit ourselves to. And every year I say I'm waiting desperately for the day when we're going to struggle to get to 10. I don't think that's going to come soon, but that, that's our goal. Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Well, Nas, thanks for helping Richard and I think through uh, this annual exercise. We just came out of a publication freeze, so we don't have too many publications, so we probably will going to skip that part. But I thought since both of us sort of were on semi-holiday at least, wonder if you took advantage of it to read anything that would be of particular interest to our listeners. 
Yes, thanks, Rob. I was reading a book that I think it came out two years ago, but uh, it's been staring at me from the shelf for a while. And I finally had a chance to read more of it, uh, How to Hide an Empire. It's a really interesting take on the U.S. held territories that have managed to seemingly sort of stay under the radar of both American and international attention in terms of the U.S.'s territorial aspirations. And of course, now I cannot remember the name of the author, but we will make sure to include that uh, after the fact. Interesting. Well, I'll tell you what I read. I read um, something I rarely do. I read a contemporary biography of James Baker. The title is The Man Who Ran Washington. He was obviously Secretary of State. He was uh, Secretary of the Treasury. He was a whole host of uh, chief of staff under both Reagan and then uh, George W.H. Bush. All I'd say is that even though it only occurred, I don't know, it was in the 90s or 80s, it is a era apart. It has nothing to do mm. with today's uh, Washington in so many ways, um, you know, deal-making between Republicans mm. and Democrats, but also the use of U.S. power, sometimes for good, sometimes for not good at all, but it's a different epoch. And I thought that book was fascinating for that reason. It captured a world that is, that is no more. Uh, and I've just started the uh, Barack Obama's autobiography, so I could talk about that when I finish it on another show. But with that, Naz, really great to have you back. Great to be back. Looking forward to more podcasts with you. And to all of you, Happy New Year. That's it for this week. But if you have any questions, please send them to media at crisisgroup.org. Leave a rating or review on iTunes. And thank you for the great Crisis Group team that week in, week out puts us together. Have a great week. Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their Golden Glow Body Set includes three clinically proven bestsellers for smooth, glowing skin, while the Glow & Go Facial Set provides spa-level results at home. Both sets come in giftable boxes with savings up to $48 and free shipping for a limited time. For 10% off your first order site-wide, go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM.